Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for a very special episode 100 Christmas Eve with a very special person I've known my whole life. It is Topper Steinman. He is my uncle, and he was my first mentor into the world of speaking, training, and whatnot. He has some extraordinary gifts and talents associated with facilitating and entering situations that people feel are conflicted or tricky or tough conversational territory. He goes there and somehow it makes it fun and interesting and safe for everybody involved. So you're going to learn, one, how to talk about just about anything with anyone. Two, rules for engagement for effectively handling confrontation. And three, approaches for moving from what to so what and then now what. If you'd like to check out the show notes, the transcripts, or the links to items or books we talk about here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep100. Let's hear Topper's story right now. Topper Steinman is a counselor and consultant from Champaign, Illinois, with 40 years experience in teaching, counseling, and consulting. As a workshop facilitator and speaker, his topics cover a wide variety of interest areas with efforts aimed at bridging the adult-youth gap while creating a healthy sense of self and others. He holds a mediation training certificate from CDR Associates of Boulder, Colorado, and is a certified instructor in parent and teacher effectiveness and experienced TESA trainer. Topper has been the recipient of the Illinois State Board of Education Those Who Excel Award as an Outstanding Counselor, the Outstanding Young Educator Award in Champaign-Urbana's Community Builders Award, among many other honors associated with his tenure in education. And on the personal side, I can tell you this is the man who delivered a eulogy at my father's funeral and spoke at my wedding. So he's very special to me, and I think you'll see why in just a moment. Here's Topper. Topper, thanks so much for appearing here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, it's great to be with you. I'm honored, humbled, and I feel like a lackey when I look at all of the people you've had on this. So it's a great community that I'm a part of. So glad to join you. Oh, thank you. Well, you are far from a lackey, and indeed, you're the closest by bloodline of all guests. <laughs> Look out. I think I am. I looked to see if there were any last names of Bacchidas or Steinman or, you know, and there aren't. So there you go. Now, I think, speaking of names, I think folks ask me a number of times when I mention you, Topper, is that his real name? What's going on there? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a show in and of itself, okay? That's a whole other podcast <laughs> if I explain that. So Othmar stays out of the show. Okay, can do. Now, so if we can give it one minute, what's the origin of Topper, if I may? Well, my real name is my great nephew, as in my nephew, who is great, Pete knows, is Othmar. And that's a hand-me-down from my dad. And it's kind of like a boy named Sue. I suffer, you suffer. <laughs> and so they didn't want to hang that title on me, I think, through school and have that awkward present when they tried to pronounce Othmar. You can do it if you gargle and do something else at the same time. <laughs> so I used to watch this show, which you have to be over, I don't know, 60 to understand it, that was on television. And I used to glue to it and it had a dog and Topper was on the show and it was a ghost. And 
then I had bright red hair when I had hair, and now you know I don't. And so when I watched the show and I had the hair, they coined that cute little nickname, and I tell people that's nice if you're three or a dog. <laughs> you should grow up and grow out of it, and I never did. So there goes Topper, and there goes Othmar. So is that a minute? Did I cover oh, my No, I think it's great. Okay. That's great. All right. So that's the rest of the story, and I've stayed with it for some odd reason. And it doesn't make me sound real professional, but that's okay. Oh, that's fun. Well, you know, I think there's so many things that you could chat about and maybe we'll have to have a repeat appearance. But, you know, what's really high on my mind based on a lot of conversations I've had with some guests as well as listeners is a real strength of yours that this will be maybe a longer setup, but I could do a couple vignettes. I remember there was one occasion, I think it was on a Christmas or so, you just sort of out of the blue and your own interest just said, hey, now you two, and you pointed to me and my brother Dave, and you said, now you two are both quite spiritual. You feel connected, but you've taken very different routes with that, haven't you? And so in the middle of a family gathering, you just highlighted, oh, let's talk about the religious comparisons and contrasts between, you know, brothers. And then after the election, you sort of started uh, chatting about that and reactions and responses. And there are other occasions, but what's so unique and wonderful about you is that Touchy topics, right? Like religion and politics. You seem to just cheerfully, courageously go there like, hey, this might be kind of fun to talk about as as opposed to being terrified like most of us. So how is this possible for you? Well, that's the drunken uncle at the Thanksgiving <laughs> table story. That's, well, first of all, that's kind of you to frame it that way. And you have been appreciative of that. I'm sure that some other folks would climb under a table as they've been known to do when I would do that. And I don't know what that's about other than I'm incredibly curious. I really value the human spirit and the makeup of what makes people who they are. You know, I love you and your brother dearly, and we have two kids, as you know, of our own, your cousins, and they are very different people also. And so, I don't know, just talking about the weather and chatting up, you know, what you're going to do next Wednesday are interesting table conversations. And yet, after a while, I nod off. So to keep me awake, I have (laughs) to keep things alive and moving. And I just take some chances with people, I guess, in that regard. And I really do it, I hope, respectfully and with a little bit of a sense of humor, which I think needs to be attached. And just a genuine interest in what makes people tick. What is it about folks that makes them move the way they do and speak the way they speak and act the way they act without sounding too weird about that? And whether that happens at Thanksgiving or Christmas or on Wednesday, I don't know. I don't even know if I answered your question, but that would be a brief response to what you're asking. Oh, no. Well, I think we're getting there. So the curiosity, the human spirit, the genuine interest. And I guess in some ways, I'm thinking if listeners are like, I want that, you know, I'm wondering in some ways, I think part of it's maybe just sort of innate, natural, like, why do you like music? Why do you like sports? I don't know. I just think they're awesome. But could you maybe take us deeper into your thought process a little bit there? Like, why do you find it fascinating? Or What sorts of questions are rolling around in your head that gets you all the more drawn in and intrigued? Well, this is going to be a real backward answer. So I can fix nothing. When you give me a thing to play with, I have no clue how to put it together or take it apart. The human spirit, for whatever reason, Pete, has always moved me and my mind has always gravitated to what makes people think, ergo, this master's degree I've got in counseling and paying attention to theorists 
I don't know, I could talk about them later, but some people. So the human spirit has always been something that seems to have worked in my brain. I guess my genetic makeup goes to that. And I used to think back in the days after I got my master's in my early 20s in counseling that life was 90% nurture and 10% nature. So I was convinced that all of this can be trained into people and we can all then live happily ever after, of course, can't we? Well, I learned that that's not quite the case. And I think now that probably it's equal doses of nature nurture that moves us. But what still moves me is more nurture than nature. And I don't know that any of this will make sense either, but I have always had a curiosity about how people are, how they act, and how their wheelhouses wheel, because my wheelhouse attached to things never worked. And so I've got lots of mind open to people. And can others be so trained? And would others want to be so trained or so thoughtful or so? I don't even know if it's thoughtful. I really don't know that. But that kind of condition has always moved me to think and gravitate to people and to gravitate to diversity in people. And that's not always been a strength because I grew up in a fairly racist environment in a small town. And to this day where we have two beautiful biracial grandchildren and a beautiful African-American son-in-law and our daughter who happens to be Caucasian like her mother and I. And, you know, it continues to move me in this direction of, so what does move us all? And I think we're all moved by that notion of wanting to be loved and accepted and appreciated and at times confronted and dealt with a little friction. And so there you go. Oh, that's good. And so when you talk about confronted and a little bit of friction, I guess I'm thinking, what are some of, I don't know, maybe the rules of engagement? Like, sure. hey, well, the boss gave an idea I think is terrible, <laughs> but I'm a little uh-huh. scared to just say, hey, boss, you're a moron. You know, you're not going to say it that way anyway, but right. we're a little scared to enter into some of the friction, some of the conflict. And so do you have maybe some mindsets or rules of engagement that you call upon to keep things feeling okay and from people going into a panic? Great questions. And my thought would be that you moron is probably not the best place to start. You're right. See, mm-hmm. that's why you write books, isn't it? Because you're that <laughs> insightful, Pete. Yeah, I know. But my gurus in this regard would be people like Roger Fisher and William Urey. Mm-hmm. They wrote two books, Getting to Yes and Getting Past No. And I would recommend those to listeners to if you're finding yourself in situations where you both want to get to yes in a business or economic or political or whatever realm you're in and getting past no, because not everybody wants to get to yes. So those two books have been seminal to me in my thought process about what I've done. I think a lot of this, in the answer to your question, a lot of it becomes relational. So if you're just starting at your job and you think your boss is not real smart. I probably wouldn't use that on day two. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're real smart. So I think that, first of all, I would develop a relationship. I would try to get to know the person. I would try to get to understand from whence they're coming. I would try to ask questions. I would try to educate myself. I would try to first look in the mirror and see what parts of this are about me, not so much about what a fool they are. And months or weeks or whenever the timing is right and you're about to blow it. And I don't think you want to blow the gasket or get to that point. Then I think I do it by way of privacy. I always think that confrontation works best, the more private it can be. I'd probably do it with some thought to, without sounding manipulative about it, but some thought to affirming. I hope you know that I like working here. I hope you know that I appreciate the honesty that you bring to meetings. And there's two things that concern me. And if you don't mind, if I could spend 15 minutes with you talking about those two, when would be a good time? 
So I think that engaging in that form of respect rather than, and I probably would be real careful about what I would tweet to my colleagues and what I would mm-hmm. email to my colleagues about this stuff. And I think especially as alive as social media is now, that's something that if I were young and I'm not closing in on 70 years old, so I don't have to play that game like, and I don't know if it's a game or not, but play that as much as other people do. But I'd probably be real careful about what I'd put in public in these kind of regards. And then I would start with I, you know, I'm concerned about when I bring up an idea in a meeting, it seems to me like it gets dismissed pretty frequently or pretty easily. I'd like to think I bring some credibility. So can you help me understand what that's about when I bring up something and it gets dismissed, what seems to me like to be pretty quickly? So I don't know. And the other way to say that is, um, so why are you always picking on me? (laughs) And I never think that gets very far. So the old you, 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 I think gets to be a little bit confrontive and too frictionful. And coming from your own sense of I appreciate or I get frustrated or whatever, and those are tactics that lots of people know that may sound phony and artificial, but to me, they're real. And if you can't own that, then I would suggest you not do that. So I don't know if that's helpful or not. Absolutely. um, No, I, I like it. I've done a lot of workshops across the country. I know you know this, Pete, but... And they've been on all the way from conflict resolution to creating peaceable schools. Dick Bodine, Donna Crawford, advocates and gurus of mine in the field locally. But the one workshop that I never was able to pull off, and this is the one I'd love to do if I ever got to the point where I could do it, and I'm fading away and I'm not doing as much, would be a workshop on sincerity. Hmm. And if I could teach people how to be genuine and sincere, we used to use a quote in training. And the quote was, sincerity may find its own technique. It's sometimes tough for technique to find sincerity. I think it's a powerful quote. So if I trained people on how to listen and people listened artificially with my training methods, I think the artificiality comes through and the phoniness comes through. So I guess I'm saying, be you, be genuine, and at the same time, it's probably a good idea to use some strategies or processes that are humanly respectful rather than just coming at people and trying to get them to change to your point of view. Oh, yes. And that is very intriguing. Well, now I'm thinking about the quote, what is it? If you could fake sincerity, then you've really got it made. Isn't that another quote? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've never, frankly, I've never heard that one, but I kind of like that. So maybe that's the workshop I should be doing. And maybe that's what I did for a living. I don't know. Well, it might have been a bit about, I think it might have been Mark Twain or something. But could you dig into that a little bit more when you talk about sincerity? And so I guess in some ways that sounds easy. Hey, just kind of be you. Yeah. But right. in practice, it's not so much. What do you think is getting in the way and... What are some ways to get past those things? Yeah. And without saying to your audience, we should all go into six months of psychotherapy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I think that some internal looks are important to do. You know, what am I made of? What makes me tick? What pushes my buttons? I think those internal looks are always, well, I don't know if always, but are frequently important looks to make and to take. And in light of that, I think you start to find, so what moves your core? What's your inner self about? Because that's what you bounce off of other people when you're in these moments of, you know, where you are frustrated with what's going on at work, or you're even pleased with what's going on at work. So I'd say, first of all, take a look inside of you. And then secondly, I would do that. And how cliche is this? Watch the judge in the book by its cover 
and watch the quick judgments that are made. I don't know. Some of this stuff says we get to know people in the first seven seconds. You make your first impression and salespeople and car salesmen and insurance people do this all the time. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I'd be wary of that. I'd be careful about judging people too quickly. And then I'd slide into what I said before. I'd slide into trying to develop some relationship with them that is meaningful, whether it's a surface relationship, because that's all you want to do, or a relationship that you want to check on a more professional and deep professional level or personal level, see what happens with that. That's about as far afield of an answer to your question as I could get. Okay. Well, that's good. Thank you. And I want to hear a little bit. So you've been into some, talk about conflict and entering those worlds. I'm thinking about some of your work with National Center for Conflict Resolution Education. You visited some places that have been experienced conflict in a really tragic way, you know, in terms of school shootings and others. I'd like to hear if you've sort of learned a couple things along the way, looking at conflict in some of its ugliest forms and working with folks in the aftermath there that are applicable to folks having their own conflicts day in, day out at work. Yeah, it's an interesting, I was in a place in the late 90s called Jonesboro, Arkansas. And a 12 and a 13-year-old recabbed on a middle school, West Middle School in Jonesboro, one tragic April day and took the lives of six young people and an educator and went down there in the summer to try to help that community heal from that sort of thing with some colleagues of mine, Fred Schrumpf and Dick Bodine and Donna Crawford and others who I mentioned. And those are incredibly raw experiences and moved me greatly at the time and still move me today when you see people reeking from that sort of and wrecking from that sort of violence. And I think there it's more important to be a support, a listener, a hugger, if that's your nature, a source of pain that you don't pretend to understand, and yet you're there with them. And then in addition to that, some ways, how can we move on? There's a facilitative technique that I believe a lot in, Pete, that's got three parts to it. What, so what, now what? And the what of Jonesboro was that seven people died and a community suffered immeasurably. The so what was that people were hurt and angry and frightened and sad and staying at those two levels, which is something I think we do, whether it's the crisis of a Jonesboro or a Columbine or some of the present days with what has happened in our present day culture of these same elements are very different, of course, than your workplace conflicts. But I think we can easily stay stuck in what and so what, and we don't move to now what. So part of what I challenge myself to do in places like a Jonesboro is, so now what are we going to do with the immeasurable pain that we're in? Or now what am I going to do that I've got this boss who I think is being real nasty to me, and I'm not sure that I know what to do with this. So I think that one of my strengths is in identifying and appreciating the what and the so what. And at the same time, in a corner of my brain, keeping in mind, now what am I going to do? And now what are you going to do with what you're experiencing? And I don't want to sound dismissive, but I think that that's an arena that we don't spend enough time in. And I don't think social media helps us do that at all. We stay stuck in the cyberbullying and the what and the so what. And well, you're at this, well, you're at that. And we don't move on to the now, what are we going to do? field enough. And and there I've got some ideas, but I'd share those with you as you begin to be more curious about them, I guess. Well, and so. I'm curious now. Let's hear it. 
Well, that to me is the Fisher-Urey stuff that I talked about earlier. And they have four principles, the getting to yes and getting past no books that I referenced, Pete. Their four principles very crudely and very quickly and not in the depth that I'd like to share them. Principle one is separate the people from the problem. Don't make issues about what idiots people are. The Japanese have a great six-word sentence, fix the problem, not the blame. Mm-hmm. And I think in America, we do a lot of blame fixing. And Fisher and Yuri would try to make us think more about the issues than about what fools the people are in the issues. And of course, there's fools, and I might be one of them in issues on occasion. But that'd be their first principle. Their second one is focus on interests, not positions. And we just watch a political, and I don't care whether you're, you know, what frame you're in, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, neutral, whatever it was, or I'm never going to vote again because I can't vote for either or, you know, of those people. But we get stuck in positions that there is no global. Yes, of course, there's global warm. There is no climate. Yes, of course, there's climate. There is no economic. Yes, of course, there's economic. And then it's Obama's fault or it's going to be Trump's fault or it was Nixon's fault or it was Bush's fault. And we spent an awful lot of time on positional bargaining rather than interest-based work, which is, you know, we all actually want a climate that works. We want an economy that works. We want a politic that works. So how can we best get there? And rather than go stuck back in our positions, can we invent options? That's step three. Can we invent options for mutual gain? So knowing that we may come at this differently, what kinds of things can we, and that's that old brainstorming thing that a lot of us know how to do and do it non-judgmentally. And I know this gets to be a little bit of psychobabble here, but throw out some options that would help us. And then the fourth criteria for them is insist on using objective criteria when we're going to resolve what it is we're going to do. So that it turns out fair for us and doesn't turn out where somebody's getting ripped off or somebody's being the bus has run over you and so, or somebody's playing martyr to the cause. So those are their principles. Separate the people from the problem, focus on interests and oppositions, create options, and then make sure that what we're doing is objective and fair. And it sounds simple in theory, and it's incredibly difficult to do in practice, as you know all too well. Mm. Well, thank you. That is great. And sometimes, you know, you haven't called upon to do just that. You know, you are the facilitator. Like We've got a, a whole lot of mess and muck and ire built up amongst ourselves. And so Topper's going to come in and fix it all. <laughs> Is that where I put on your Superman cape? I, can, I don't know if your audience knows you have worn a Superman cape. I don't know if they know this or not. <laughs> I'm sure... It will come up again, right? <laughs> Maybe a Halloween or so. Yeah, really, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so, well, obviously the first error in your thinking there is Topper will come in and fix it all. So, yeah, I would never pretend to come in and fix anybody's muck and stuff. I think their muck and their stuff is very real, and I think the first thing we need to do is honor that and uh, suggest that it's very real and begin to get them to put that in the frame of what are the top three or four things that you think you're struggling with the most. And this would be good information, I think, for a 25 or 26-year-old to think about. Not just what's the muck and the mess, but when it's working, what's going on? Because I think sometimes we come at this conflict from a deficit aspect too much. And if we could begin to reframe that to say, when it's working, is it ever working? Yeah, it works. Well, what's working? Well, you know, when we're away from each other, it seems to work. Okay. And what else is working? Well, when we text or stay off of social media with our 
muck and our mess, that seems to work. Okay, when else is it working? We come in in the morning and people happen to smile or be, I don't know, just say good morning, it seems to work. Okay, well, let's say when you're in a meeting and people aren't just glomming all the time. And so what can we do to build on that? So I don't know if I'm making sense, but I think we need to build on assets as much as we need to deal with deficits. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. And now I'm thinking a little bit tactically in like, you are the facilitator. They have hired, maybe they do have expectations that are over the top in terms of what heroism you'll be able to deliver for them. But I'd love to hear some of your best practices for keeping your cool and facilitating and engaging in those conversations without having blowups in a bad way. Sure. Well, there's a couple of things to consider here. One is when you're a third party person, this next thing I'm going to mention, I think is easier to do than when you're just in a two party negotiation that could be frictionful and nasty. The third party person like me, I can help establish some ground rules. And some of mine would be things like, so can we all agree to whatever happens in here stays in here? It's private. Can we all agree that we'll be respectful of people's time? Can we all agree that we'll listen to each other to the point maybe of even saying back what you just heard the person maybe that you disagree with say? And could we all agree to work towards some resolution while knowing there's a lot on the table that bothers us? Could we all agree to work towards some resolution? If you can set a framework for some of that to go on, you're going to be light years ahead than if you were to go into a meeting and say, from my point of view, so what's going on? Mm -hmm. And then the darts start flying and the stuff starts going. And then before you know it, you're in the middle of the muck and the mess. And you're, wait, wait, John, just slow down. No, hang on. No, I'm not hanging. You know, and then you get the emotions and the perceptions. And by then you're right in the milieu of it. And you've probably lost the battle to begin with. So I think the first thing to do is to set some ground rules. And that would include negotiating as a two-party person. Can we talk with each other and can we try to get this out in a way that we both have a chance to say something and then listen to each other a little bit? And could we work toward getting after it in a way that's not going to make either of us, I don't know, get uglier about things? I don't know. You know, you set those kind of things up. So I think that can be done, first of all. And then I think it's important to hear each other's points of view. Mm -hmm. And the third thing I think is so you get points of view out on the table. And then I think it's a pivotal question that's talked about a lot in negotiation and mediation is, so what do you want to have happen out of this? And why do you want to have that happen? And not very many people say, well, I'd like to stay ugly and I'd like to stay bothered and I'd like to stay frustrated. Most people want to get this resolved and whatever the thing is, get it worked out. And then you begin to build a framework for, so how are you going to go about doing that? And that gets back to that fourth step of thinking about all the different things we could do. And what do you think would be fairest for you all to do here? And then what could you all agree to one or two things that we could do between now and next week when we come back together? And, you know, we didn't just cure cancer or solve world hunger, but maybe we agreed if we have something to say about each other, we'll say it to each other and not outside of each other or not on social media. Mm. Excellent. Thank you. Well, Topper, you tell me, is there anything else, you know, within these areas you want to make sure that you say before we shift gears and hear about a couple of your favorite things? Well, two things. One, I think a sense of humor, if you've got some light side of you that can come out, matters and it counts. And I don't know, I grew up in an area where my glass was more half full than half empty. So if I think if you come into this victim-like and martyr-like, whatever your friction is, you'll probably stay victim and martyr-like. 
in the conflict resolution work I did, Pete, I used to use these principles, but I'd say to people, some people you meet with in life, nothing you do will get in their way. Conflict is their nature. And I think you have to come to grips with that at some point, that hopefully you're not one of those people and hopefully you're not married to that person. (laughs) I happen to not be. So I've got a beautiful, lovely wife who is my ground plug. And so those three things, humor, coming at it with a glass that's half full. And if you're playing victim and martyr in life, then go get some, I don't mean this this crassly, but go get some help because you're not going to get very far because there's a lot of things to be victimized and martyred about. And so mm. those would be three things I'd end on. Okay, thank you. How upbeat was that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, don't it's... be a victim and a martyr. Just <laughs> dust yourself back off and get off, get back in the game. Get back in the you game. You know, it's funny that you, you say it, though. Strategy. Yeah, right. I was <laughs> chatting with someone who uh, said, oh, Topper Simon's your uncle. He's like, you know what? He just has this limitless cheerfulness. And I don't have that. I would like to, but I guess I don't. (laughs) And I think there that, you know, we all don't bring the same skill set. So thank God we've got people that aren't like me and that are in your business and that are grounded and that are rational and that can think pragmatically and don't think pie in the sky all the time. And then what a beautiful mosaic we all create. So thank God we're not all coming at it from this angle. So I think the curmudgeon and the victim and the whatever are going to be a part of a social set. That's what we know about group psychology is that people are going to take on those roles. So there you go. Okay. Well, so now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? A couple things probably move me. One is the thought that it's not so much what happens to you, but what you do with what happens to you that counts. So that would be one. These are coming off my locker room. You know, it's not the fight in the dog. It's the dog in the item. But the other one would probably be, I use this a lot with young people. I've done audiences with young people where I do a thing called SOS, which is believe it. And it's based on believing and respect yourself, believing and respect others, believing and respect that you can make a constructive difference in the stuff of life. So I used to do a lot of workshops all over the place about that. But I've often told them, if you think that you can or you think that you can't, you're probably right. So I think the mindset that you do bring into stuff has a lot to do with where we go to. So those would be a couple of quotes off my locker room that I'd probably share with you. Well, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or research piece that you find interesting? Well, I always find interesting the work that I mentioned by Fisher and Yuri. I always find some of my colleagues, the Bodines and Crawfords that I mentioned. I always find William Glasser's work. I grew up with you know, people like Fritz Perls and Albert Ellis and, you know, and so any pieces that would deal with some of their work would be meaningful to me and I think meaningful to others in the realm of psychology. And so I don't know that there'd be any one particular piece that struck me a lot, the old Hawthorne effect where, you know, we dim the lights and stuff went down and we turned the lights back up and manufacturing instruction went up. I think we're in charge of our own. So some of those studies You know, that German study that was sick where some babies were, and you couldn't get by with this today, thank heaven, but some babies were hugged and loved and other babies were left alone and they were both fed the same amount and the hugged and loved babies and nurtured babies survived and the others frankly died. And so I think stuff like that makes a difference to me and my psyche and that if we could learn to support each other and affirm each other and like I said, friction each other and just make contact with each other, we're going to be better off than if we don't. So those stand out in my mind a bit. Oh, cool. And how about a favorite book? Well, growing up, can I do this developmentally? Oh, sure. 
the first book I ever read that was of any consequence would have been Catcher in the Rye. And I was just struck by Holden Caulfield. He could say those words and be a little bit of a rebel. And I've got a little rebel in me, as you know, from my dining room tables at Christmas or Thanksgiving. That one, To Kill a Mockingbird. I recently read a book by Jody Picoult called The Small Great Things. It's a powerful study on racism and in our country, and that's a movement that moves me, and I like her stuff, and she does great character and human development work. So those would probably be some books that I would cite. Mm -hmm. And how about a personal practice of yours that's been really handy, a good habit? Napping. Oh, yes. What time and how long? Yeah, really right. All (laughs) All the above. Well, I think... Humor, I think the connection I have with my wife is a lifesaver for me. The connection that I hope I have with my kids and my grandkids is a lifesaver for me. So those human relations matter. People like yourself and your mom and your dad and Jim and Dave and are lifesavers for me. So I think, and then that private moment where I can maybe play a piano a little bit or mess around in a harmonica or think about playing my new instrument, you know, I don't know, whatever it, I mean, those kind of things all move me. So I try to keep my mind active and keep it moving and keep it energized a bit. It seems to get me to the next day and then I wake up and I celebrate. Oh, lovely. (laughs) The word is celebrate, not celebrate. Celebrate, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. We can tell that joke. (laughs) Just take it, just take it. Yeah, just take that and run with it, run with it. Well, give me your, and say to your people, because I want to turn this around. So what's the cue and the clue that you would give to your listeners that moves you and makes your life work? The cue and the clue. Well, I mean, well, I just got married. That was great. Yay. So that's Katie. And I was able to be at that wedding. <laughs> Katie is an amazing human being as you are. And what a match made in heaven. That was fun. Anyway, so keep going. Oh, thank you. Well, and I'd say prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Learning. I mean, well, the podcast is so fun just because I get to chat with people that I would just love to chat with anyway. But now there's like, oh, so there's a benefit to me for talking to you in terms of exposure and connection to new people. That's really just fun is learning and sharing stuff that really helps people. And so yeah. I think that really does get me fired up. And then I think just generally having things, I take an interesting, maybe too much delight in something just working very well you know yes like when i was coordinating the speed dating event my favorite moment was like three dates in everyone is just rotating it's like ah it just works or at the wedding you know it's like everyone's rocking this dance floor right Right. and i'm just chatting with people it works (laughs) well what does not amaze me but what i was so fascinated by is that the influence that you have in a very short period of time with your energy your optimism your creativity your unabridged uninhibitedness to just be who you are moves other people to take risks I think that matter a lot and the fact Pete Mikaitis that you can do that at 33 years of age or whatever it is is a phenomenal gift so I continue to hope that you'll share your gift of you with lots of people through podcasts and Thanksgiving dinners because I certainly look forward to a lot more with you well thank you I'm so honored Maybe as we move to the conclusion, could you share maybe a favorite parting word or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, the parting word I would have would probably be be you and grow. Okay, can you elaborate just a little bit? It's very succinct, which I like, but I'd also like some meat. (laughs) Yeah, I think that as you 
get to know yourself at 25 or 35 or 45 or 55, honor yourself, acknowledge yourself. Well, you got skeletons in your closet, open your closet up and bring them out and take a look at them and smell them and hang on to them and, you know, deal with them and know that they're there. And so honor you, be you. And we're not all Topper or Pete or Donald Trump or Barack Obama or whoever our heroes and our goats are. We're not those people. We're who we are. So be you and then be open to growing, be open to learning, be open to listening, be open to a podcast, be open to hearing somebody from a different point of view, be open to listening to a Hillary Clinton who you despise and just try to hear what she's saying someday or Donald Trump who you can't stand. And then just open yourself up to the engagement of that thought and see if out of that anything can come from you other than just what a fool they are and translate that inside out. So how's that for a thought? That's excellent. Thank you. Yes. Well, Topper, this has been a blast. I've long known that you're brilliant and great to chat with. And so now Thousands of others do as well. So I really appreciate you making your podcast debut with me. (laughs) Well, I'm honored to have done it and I'm humbled to have done it. And I can't think of anyone I'd rather do that with than my nephew, Pete Mekaitis. So thank you for the chance to come on, Pete. I appreciate it. Oh, I hope you found some of those tools helpful in terms of being able to cheerfully go there and cultivate a curiosity, a fascination with what people are saying, moving a little bit from what to so what, now what, and more. So If you want to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F100. And I do hope you'll punch the subscribe button. As is my custom here on the show, I tend to have very short, like a couple of minutes, solo episodes during times when most workers in the United States are not working, which would include now, you know, and that little gap between uh, Christmas and New Year's. So I'm going to offer a couple quick reflections along those lines. I hope to catch you then or later when we return with our normal, regular guest routine. But in the meantime, I wish you a very Merry Christmas and other holidays that unfold in the days ahead. So thanks and have a good one. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you.